Good morning. Good to see you all. Let's look at our bulletin. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. 1 John 5.2. Studies in the confession taught by Jared in the adult class uh, with the, uh, also the new members, 9.30 uh, here. Um, I, I took it today and I'll also have it next week and then back to the capable hands of, of Jared. Video series on the uh, Reformation, uh, that tonight at 6 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall. 
We've uh, been away from that for a little while, so we'll get back to that. Bring uh, your finger foods as, as usual. Um, if you've not been coming, it's, it's too bad, and you're going to a bit come in in the middle, but just really good. So if you can get out, um, it gives you a lot, of, a lot of background. And it's not just the Reformation per se. It's, I hesitate to use the word, reformed thinking. It's, it's, it's new covenant theology. How's that? Men's Bible study uh, at the McLeod home. That's Tuesday at 10. Prayer service Wednesday evening at 7. Next Sunday is our communion service following the morning worship. Wow, has it been a month? Where did that go? Plan for a dinner in the Fellowship Hall. Great. Uh, bring a dish to pass, and uh, then you'll have your own table service. As you know, Donna went home to be with the Lord August the 15th. Some bags uh, with her clothes and shoes are now in the church library or upstairs. I think maybe it's in the other junior church room, but upstairs. And uh, you see that she would be pleased if some could make use of them. And uh, there'll be some more coming. So if you'd like to take a look and use what you can. Pastor, would like to thank the church for your many prayers and encouragement. And also for the tree memorial planted in the backyard. Pray that the funeral service message and testimonies will reach deep into the hearts of the unbelieving to bring life and salvation to the lost. I'm so thankful and appreciative for the way Christ was honored and Donna remembered. Love to you all, Pastor. And I think that very much was true. Okay, did I miss anything this morning? Our scripture for meditation comes from John's Gospel, chapter 15. Read 5 through 20.
Let's stand and open with prayer this morning. Ed, can I ask you to open to for us today? Thanks. Remain standing. Good morning. Can you take your red hymnals and turn to page 377. 377.
and I'm sorry, Naomi. <laughs> Naomi, I'll do you next week, okay? And uh, Dr. Ed, go ahead. Did? Okay, then Naomi, you're up. For one in the brown. For one in the brown. One of my favorites. Why do you want this one, honey? Okay. She loved this hymn too. First John chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 21. Dale's going to read.
Okay. First John five. Stand with us. We'll read together. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his, his will, he hears us. <clears throat> and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one, pardon me, I'll re read that again. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that God pardon me I'm, we know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true even in his son Jesus Christ he is the true God and eternal life dear children keep yourselves from idols ask that the Lord would bless his word Take your red hymnals again and turn to 378. I'm pretty sure that's what I... Yes, 378 in the red again.
Our scripture text this morning is 1 John chapter 5. Well, we're coming to the end of this wonderful, wonderful epistle written by John, which we've called Little John. There's two more little Johns, even littler than this John, if you look at first John or second John and third John. And in our last lesson we dealt with a strange biblical teaching, twice born. Twice born. We discovered that there is a natural birth, which we all experience as we come into the world as human beings, but the Bible also speaks of a spiritual birth which has a number of different designations in the Bible. Born of God, born from above, born again. The terms are all synonymous with people whose lives have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as he gives them a new and alive to God spiritual birth. The reason the Bible calls this new birth is because a new nature is created which has not been there before. All that physical birth produces is a nature dead in trespasses and sins, which we inherit from Adam and Eve. This nature violates the law of God continually. It's sinning against God is all that it can do. All that it will ever do. Your old nature, that's what it does. The new nature born of God's spirit implants a godly principle in the heart which loves God because he first loved us. And it is empowered by his spirit to live in obedience to Jesus' commands. Those who trust Christ by faith have overcome the world and the consequences of their sin, verse 5 says, Verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's pretty succinct, isn't it? And so John closes his letter with the subject of prayer that gets results, effectual prayer. It's a vital subject for the Christians because who wants to pray just to go through the motions? No. When we pray... We want results. We want the assurance that God hears our prayers and answers them. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we do, let's seek the Lord's enablement. Heavenly Father, send your spirit upon us to teach us of the words of the great Apostle John, whom we know from Scripture and from his life was the Apostle you particularly loved. Who would think that you would have a favorite among the apostles? But you did, and that's okay. And here he is in his old age, age 95 or so, island on the island of Patmos, a penal colony, for preaching the gospel. So what's he doing on the island? He's writing his last will and testament. He's writing the last words and thoughts about the gospel. Jesus Christ. So we would do well to read his final thoughts as that, that he's giving his final explanation of who Christ is. 
why we should be followers of him. Bless and honor this word. Exalt Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. We're looking at the subject this morning from 1 John 5, the subject of effectual prayer. Now that's just a fancy way of saying prayer that works. Prayer that works. There's a lot of people that pray. We'll talk about that a little bit. But what prayers work? How are they effectual? Well, if you look at your bulletin outline, the first thing is that answered prayer is guaranteed for those who believe in the Son of God. Answered prayer is guaranteed for those who believe in the Son of God. Faith in Jesus Christ is not incidental to answered prayer. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now that's not the first time we have read that faith, about faith in this chapter. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 10, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony, that is God's testimony, in his heart. One would have to be totally oblivious to the theme here to ignore the fact that John is addressing who? He's addressing believers. Those who have committed themselves by faith to the truth of the gospel. John then is not talking to people who are simply religious He is not talking to mere professing Christians. He's not talking to people of other faiths. He is not addressing those who are Christians in name only, but have no real trust in Jesus as Savior. He is writing only to those who are on the same page with him. He is writing to family members, could I put it that way? People who are in the same spiritual category of being Born of God, verse 1. Same category that he is in. This is not shocking. There's nothing revolutionary about it. In chapter 4, verse 1, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, verse 4, you dear children. These are the recipients of his words. When you write a letter home to mom and dad, or some other distant family member, the content of your letter is meant for their eyes only. And what you write is apropos for them alone. If you say, I miss you and I hope you feel better soon, I'm praying for you. You are not saying, I miss the old man who lives on the corner house on your street. No. You don't even know the old man on the corner house. You only know of him because you grew up in the same neighborhood. The letter is not meant for him. So its contents have no bearing on him. You don't know that he is ill. But you do know that your dad is ill and you want to be assured, him to be assured of your prayers. So you write in that way. All this has bearing 
on our text this morning, wherein John deals with the subject of prayer to God. When he writes, as he does in verse 14 and 15, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. This promise is not written, brethren, to everyone and all people who pray. It's written to God's people. Verse 3 states, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So for whom are these words written? Well, we're back to the recipients of this letter. Who are those only who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have been united to him by faith? He's writing to those who, verse 12, have the Son of God, and as consequence, verse 11, those to whom God has given eternal life. So what I am saying here is this is not a blanket endorsement that God answers each and every person's prayer who prays. You know, almost all religions encourage prayer. You know that. Buddhists pray. Hindus pray. Muslims make a ritual out of prayer. Setting five designations a day for prayer facing Mecca, their sacred center of worship. One time I was on a trip to Toronto and we stopped at a place to eat. And there in the corner of the court area of the restaurant, a Muslim unrolled his prayer uh, mat in front of a window pointing towards Mecca. And he knelt down on that to pray. He didn't care that anybody was looking or that anyone would say anything to him. He just rolled out his mat and he prayed. All religious religions encourage and foster prayer. What does this tell us about people? What does it tell us about religions? Well, it tells us that there is an inherent sense of need, even in the natural heart, for satisfaction of spiritual hunger as men and women created in the image of God. They long for a sense of fulfillment and harmony within the spiritual dimension of their being, but they're going about it in the wrong way. The God to whom they pray is not the God of the Bible. Thus not God at all. We were talking about that in the adult class. The motive, the reasoning behind their prayer is to earn approval from God. They're working their way to heaven. And often such prayers are self-centered as users of God. And no such praying has any concept, none, of Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man. Now you might ask me, well, how do you know this? Well, we know it because God declares it in his word. We get all of our knowledge about all of the aspects of theology and about the Christian life from the word of God. Wonder of wonders, he tells us how to worship him and who can. And who's accepted and who's not? Let me read some of it for you. 
The scripture says, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. First Chronicles 16, verse 26 and following. It's an appeal to the nations to give up their idols Worship the Lord of glory alone. The reason for this appeal is all the gods of the nations are idols. Verse 21 of that text. 1 Chronicles 16. John says, verse 21 of our text, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. It's the Greek word idon, idolon, from which we get the English word idol. And it, it means an image or likeness representing the form of an object, whether real or imaginary. So in the case of God, an image of God, a conception of God. We're not to self-conceive. How many times have you heard people say, well, my God wouldn't send anybody to hell. Yeah, well, your God doesn't exist. And when you say, my God, you are inventing God the way you want him to be, not the way he is. Again, the psalmist says, the idols of the nation are silver and gold made by the hands of men. <laughs> they have mouths, okay, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears. But they cannot hear, nor is there breath in their nostrils. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Psalm 135, verse 15 and following. And the one word that we could use to summarize the idols of the nations is this word, impotent. Impotent. They have all the features of life. <laughs> without the life. They look real, but they're not real. They have an appearance of the supernatural, but in fact, they are made by the hands of men. It matters little whether one is talking about a literal statuette called God or a concept of God that is not true. It's still idolatry because God is being misrepresented. We remember that there is so much danger in people thinking up their own ideas of God that the first two of the Ten Commandments prohibit this. Let me read them for you. You shall have no other gods 
before me. Okay, then the second one, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. That pretty well covers everything, doesn't it? You shall not bow down. There's, your, there's the prayer. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Exodus 20, verse 3 and following. Ezekiel was told by God, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I then inquire of, let them inquire of me at all? Ezekiel 14, verse 2 and 3. He's saying of the people that when they worship idols, and then they want to come and talk to me, should I allow that? They've disowned me all along. Now all of a sudden they want to pray to me. Simply put, if people worship idol concepts of God, then God the one and only is not about to listen to their prayers, and why should he? Why should he? They worship idols of their own making. They distort God. They deny the God of the Bible. They prefer to fashion God the way they want him to be. All of that is an affrontery to God. Do you know that was the original sin? The original sin. Paul words that although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. What's that? Idols of the nations are facsimiles of men. Supermen maybe, but still just men. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Romans 1, 21 and following. In other words, idols. Our first point is this. Answered prayer is guaranteed for those who believe and worship the Son of God. Secondly, answered prayer is the result of praying for things in accordance with God's will. Here's a limitation even for believers. It is. The Lord has pledged himself not to listen to the prayers of the idol worshipers. Yeah, that's true. And now, here we are told that if we expect to have confidence that God will answer our prayers, our confidence in approaching God is related to verse 14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. You know the hard part about prayer the hard part is getting a hearing before God. No one prays to God anticipating rejection. Everyone prays expecting an answer. Even the unbeliever prays 
to their idols, expecting their God to answer them. No one prays apart from that expectation. We read in scripture, the Egyptians will lose heart and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master. and The fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah 19, verse 3 and 4. They pray to their idols, but God Almighty disposes of their kingdom by taking them into captivity. Oh, and who can forget the contests on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? One prophet of God against 450 of them. And the contests consisted of two altars and two animal offerings on the altar, one for Elijah, one for the prophets of Baal, with this proviso, then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, said Elijah. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, oh, what you say is good. In other words, we are agreed. This is a good, this is a good contest. 1 Kings 18, verse 24. And we read the prophets of Baal called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. Oh, and they danced around the altar that they had made. 1 Kings 18, verse 26. It got pretty embarrassing. <laughs> because even Elijah began to taunt them. <laughs> suggesting um, maybe Baal's asleep. And, you know, you've you, you, you got to shout a little louder. And they listened to Elijah, and they began to shout a little louder. Um, maybe he's on a long journey. And, you know, if he's out of the country, then... He can't hear you. Not going to answer. See, that's a spatial concept of God. That's an idolatrous concept of God. Baal, if he's out of the country, well, then he can't help you. Is that our God? Is he out of the country? Maybe he is asleep or a distant journey. We read midday, midday passed, and they continued their fanatic and frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. Listen, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Of course, First Kings 18, verse 29. Because Baal is not God. Well, exhaustion set in from their futile prayers, and it was now Elijah's turn. So after dousing his offering with multiple buckets of water, and the prayer was going to be for water. They had been without water. And that's what was going on here. There was a drought. So here he takes precious water 
and he douses the offerings, his offering, with water. We read, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. First Kings 18. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? And here Elijah tells the secret of his answered prayer to God. Here's what it is. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done what? All these things at your command. Oh. His actions, his prayer were according to the will of God. And so God answered. When we end our prayers with I will be done, I hope it isn't just a trite slogan that we're tacking on to our prayer time. But I hope we're understanding that God is only going to answer things that are according to his will. Elijah was a prophet of God and as such he received special revelations from God through dreams or visions inspired by the Spirit of God. This is how he he could pray his prayer according to the will of God. Okay, but how are we supposed to know the will of God? Contrary to some of the charismatic brethren who believe in tongues and dreams and visions and prophecies as viable resources for discovering the will of God, even on our day, the Bible itself declares that with the coming of Jesus Christ and his teaching, these extraordinary means for discovering the will of God have ended. Let me read it for you. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past. When you hear the word past, that's a time reference. You know, it's in the olden days. Is what the writer is saying. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Yeah, he doesn't list the ways, but visions, dreams, theophanies. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You want to know God? Study his Son, Jesus. That's how you come to know God. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 18, and following says, Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, he's talking about revelational knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, at the very least, Paul is saying 
that prophecies and tongue speaking and the ability to receive revelational knowledge from God is imperfect. That's, that's the minimum that he's saying here. It's imperfect. Well, what then do we have to discover the will of God? If we're going to pray according to the will of God, what do we got? Well, we have the written, God-breathed word of God, of whom Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew 24, verse 35. God used to use prophecy, dreams, visions, and the like, to convey his will to his people. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son and his words. His teaching is eternal. Eternal. So what I'm saying is to pray God's will back to him. All we need is to pray for things which are agreement with the teachings of the Bible. That's the best way to pray. You see something in the scripture? that God wants for your life, and you make that part of your prayer life, that, that's good praying. That's praying on solid footing. However, if you pray that God will help you get even with someone who did you much harm at work by slandering your good name, you can forget about God answering that kind of prayer. Why? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treats you. Luke 6, verse 28. That's why. Or again, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, verse 19. Again, if you pray that God will arrange or approve an immoral sexual relationship for you, he will not answer that prayer. Because what? The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. You think God's going to answer a prayer like that? What about praying that God will defend you in a lie? Or a deception that you're trying to pull off on somebody? He cannot, he will not accommodate you because the devil is the liar and the father of lies. John 8 verse 44. And again, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars have their place in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, Revelation 21 verse 8. You've got to find prayers that are in harmony with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Oh, and James warns us that we cannot use prayer to God to gratify our own lusts. When you ask, says James, you don't receive. Huh. Say, I thought God answered all prayers. No, no, let me read it again. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James 4 verse 3. I was watching the Powerball winner the other day. What was it? 450 some million dollars the person won. 
And I thought, boy, I'd like to win half that. I remember my daughter saying, now, Dad, you got to play to win. <laughs> you got to play to win. I had this wonderful thing. You know, I'd pay off people's church mortgages. I'd pay off their house mortgages. I would support missions. I would do all of these various things. And James says, oh, no, you wouldn't. You would spend that on your own pleasures. So God keeps us on our knees, keeps us praying for whatever he sends our way, even if it isn't in the millions. What I am saying is that answered prayer is the result of praying God's will back to him, and we learn of his will in the teachings of Jesus, his son. You're always on safe ground. If you can look in the gospel accounts or in the epistles and see things that even the Apostle Paul prayed for. Uh, you know, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, he prayed for. Paul is praying God's will on these people. And God is answering their prayers. Okay, that brings us then, finally, to what is some God-honoring, I'll put it that way, God-honoring legitimate prayers. Number one in your bulletin. Pray for yourself and others who sin. Look in our text, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. There is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to understand. At cursory reading, it may seem that there is some sin which is exempt from the wages of sin, which is death. But that's not what John is saying. We know in 1 John 3, verse 4, John said, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. No one who continues to sin has either seen him, that is Jesus, or known him. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. So, sin is lawlessness, and sin is something the devil does. And when we sin, we're on his team. Okay, would any of us think of praying for the devil? So, perish the thought. Yeah, right. Asking God to love the devil, to spare the devil from the judgment to come? Would we ask God to forgive the devil? Verse 19 tells us that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So the bulk of humanity is hell-bound because of the devil's control and his evil intent. Verse 18 implies that the devil has harmed people and would harm us too if it were not for the intervention of God on our behalf. Consider then what we have learned elsewhere in this epistle about apostates and the spirit of Antichrist. Chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Dear children, it's the last hour. 
And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would, not have, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. When a person departs from the faith, willingly, decisively, intentionally, that apostasy shows their true colors and their true allegiance. Had they been true brothers of the faith, they would have remained with the church. But they went out in the spirit of antichrist. They sided with the devil. They sided in this adversarial position against Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews explains, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, if they fall away, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they have crucified the Son of God all over again. Siding with the devil, the murderer, and his crowd, and subjecting Jesus to public disgrace. Hebrews 6, verse 4 and following. So here's what I think John is saying. I think he's saying something like this. Do not pray for apostates. Their desertion of Christ after knowing him is unforgivable, just like the devil's betrayal and rebellion is unforgivable. But not all sin falls into that category. In fact, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death... He should pray for him, and God will give him life. This is part of fulfilling the mandate of Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Or James writes, confess your sins to each other. That is, the sin you have done to a brother should be confessed to him or her. And pray for each other. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful. It's effective. James 5, verse 16. One positive thing we can pray about is that God will forgive our sin. <coughs> and the sin of an erring brother or sister who is caught in a trespass. In other words, they were taken by the devil in a snare, in a trap. And we need to pray for them. Secondly, let us learn that pray, that we're to pray that God will protect his people from the evil one. Since the whole world lies under the control of the evil one, verse 19, there's not a place you can go to find heaven on earth. Everywhere you turn, you will be bombarded by the fiery darts of the devil. The world is saturated with his philosophy. There's no getting away from the devil and his philosophy. But there can be protection from it. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. See also chapter 3, verse 9. The one born of God... 
the one born of God, he's speaking of Jesus, the uniquely begotten, keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. You have Christ on your side. Jesus taught us to pray in the disciples' prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Matthew 6, verse 13. Don't you think this is a legitimate prayer then to pray for one another? Lord, protect my daughter. Lord, protect my son, my husband, my wife from falling into the devil's snare. That's the will of God. Pray that God will protect his people from the evil one. Then thirdly, pray that God will give us increased understanding and love for his son. Look at verse 20. We know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. He is the true God. And eternal life. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Hymn, hymn on our hymnal says, More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. We need to pray that we would love Christ more. Pastor Tucker went home to be with the Lord August 12th, one year ago this year. Two days before, three days before Donna. What I learned from John, I learned a lot from John, but one of the things I learned from John He would say in his prayers, Lord, I love you. That's not the way I reason. I always reason, oh, I'm I'm more like Peter. (laughs) Lord, you know I love you. (laughs) That's the way Peter answered when God, when Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? I, I would pray. You know I love you, not John. He would pray, Lord, I love you. You know what salvation is? It's to have the Son. He who has the Son has eternal life. Don't listen to people that say, well, I love God. I can go out here and just about anybody on the street, stop them in their car and say, do you love God? Do you know God? Do you love God? And they would say, well, I love God. Or I know God. That's not the key. I would go on to say, well, what do you think about his son, Jesus Christ? Mm What's your relationship to Jesus? Mm. It isn't God that's the defining person of the Trinity. 
It's the Savior, Jesus Christ. What do you think of him? Oh, and by the way, John has said, he who loves the Father loves his Son. So don't tell me I love God or I know God and you hate Jesus or won't have anything to do with him. Then lastly, I think it's proper to pray, Lord, keep me from idols, verse 21. We talked about that in the adult class this morning and a little bit today. Israel, the Old Testament people of God, so easily succumb to the pagan notions of God about them that they adopted idolatry and God took them into captivity by the very idolatrous people that they believed. The Babylonians, the Persians. You want idolatry? Okay, I'll give you idolatry. Any here today who have trouble committing to Jesus Christ as Lord, you're following an idol concept of God. You're living proof of the devil's control. And it's so subtle, it's so natural, it's so easy that you think you are a free agent, all the while the devil holds you fast in his kingdom of lies and deception and darkness. That's part of it. He wants you to believe that you're in control. Come away from your idolatry by fleeing to God for deliverance in Christ his Son. He's the true God and he's, the, he's eternal life, verse 20. There's light, there's a understanding awaiting you, but you must renounce your sin. You must flee from your life of, to a safe haven in Jesus. It is Christ alone. Christ alone that is the Savior. John words it this way, chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So without the Son, that work is still active, not destroyed. Any worship other than that of the God of the Bible is idolatry. But how wicked is idolatry? You ever ask that question? I asked that question this week. Paul answers. He says the sacrifices of pagans, and they're idolatry now, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. Ooh, have you ever thought of that? That behind every idol is a demon sucking up the worship that belongs to Christ alone. Is God going to tolerate that? You've switched your allegiance from Jesus Christ, his son, to a demon, his arch enemy. I can't think of anything much more wicked than to give to demons the worship that's due alone to God. But every day, day in, day out, America and Americans worship their idol concepts of God and the demons are soaking it in. Yeah, man. 
in it. And Christ is put on the shelf. Don't honor the Son, you don't honor God. You don't honor God, you're in deep, deep trouble. Our Lord, we pray that you will bless us with repentant hearts. I know we have our idols. Oh, they're not necessarily little statuettes made out of gold or silver or bronze or whatever. No, no, they're not things like that. They're idol concepts, thoughts of God. We, we say it when we're talking to one another. Well, my God would never, or my God would do this, or my God is this, or whatever. And when we hear what they say, it confronts and denies what God himself says about himself in the scriptures where he has revealed himself. If we want to know God and what he's like, we need to listen to God, and in particular to his son. So any here that are outside of Jesus, what are? They're outside of God. They don't have the son, so they don't have the father. They're condemned for their unbelief with regard to the Son. So any chit-chat about how they love God or pray to God or whatever else is all bogus. It's part of the deception of the evil one. To distort and to dissuade people from putting their faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And the Father wants us to honor his Son, Jesus. And we don't honor him by remaking him or ignoring him. Please, Lord, help us not to do that today. Bring us to the foot of the cross and help us to see that it's Christ and him alone that's the Savior of sinners. And then take us from the cross to the open tomb and to show us the open tomb promises that as with Christ, we have life eternal promised to us. The grave is not the victory It's the open grave that is the victory. And it's Jesus that opened that tomb. Help us to see that. Bless and honor your words. Save whom you will. In Jesus' name we ask for his glory. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 528. 528 in the red hymnal. Let's stand as we sing. Andrea is going to come and lead us. Five, two, eight. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. Hear me while I pray. Take all my guilt away. Oh, let me from this day be holy thine. May thy rich grace impart strength to what? To my fainting heart, my zeal inspire. As thou hast died for me, O may my love to thee, pure, warm, and changeless be a living fire. Let's stand together and we'll sing 528 in the red hymn.
forget our Bible study tonight. We're learning about the Reformation, which has to do with recapturing the gospel that was lost in the ages because of the Roman church. And I remind you that upstairs in the room is our bags of uh, clothes from Donna. You know she would really, I can answer this, she would really prefer that y'all get her clothes than me taking up the goodwill. But, but that's where they're going to go if you don't take them. So help yourself walk out of here with bundles of clothes if, if you can wear them, if you want them. If you don't, I'm not trying to say you must, you must, you must. I'm just saying uh, she would be extremely uh, blessed and uh, happy about the whole situation. So we'll see you tonight, Lord willing. Thank you. We're dismissed. <laughs>